Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at FMEP. Jonathan Pollack is a veteran activist against Israeli apartheid from Jaffa. He has been involved in the Palestinian struggle for over two decades, in, during which he was seriously injured and incarcerated numerous times. He is currently awaiting trial under house arrest after having been arrested on January 27th of this year at a demonstration against settlement expansion in the West Bank village of Beta, south of Nablus. And I'm really thrilled that he's joined us for this conversation. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So before we delve into some of the broader issues um, and your background and and the, the um, and, uh, and I wanted to just ask you to tell listeners a little bit about how this case that's currently undergoing in uh, under that's that's currently underway involving you what how it began. So specifically, I've been, like you said, I've been involved in struggle against the Israeli policies for the better, for over two decades. Um, but this, and, it, and it's an ongoing battle of um, repression and resistance. Um, but this case specifically um, started when I was at a demonstration against settlement expansion um, in on Beta's lands in the West Bank. Um, it's a settlement, it's a so-called outpost. Um, some people may have heard of called Aviatar. It was erected um, on their land, um, it, supported by the government. Um, and there have been uh, ongoing protests there for um, almost two years now with 10 people killed uh, during these uh, demonstrations by the military's violence. Um, and thousands injured and hundreds arrested. Um, so there was a there's a demonstration there every Friday now, and uh, it was the same on the 27th of of January this year. Um, with when I was arrested, I was arrested by three border police officers who detained me um, as the demonstration was coming to an end. Um, I was actually leaving the demonstration. The demonstration has actually ended. I was leaving and we found the army blocking the, the exit from the village um, and waited for them to clear it out. Uh, when at some point they charged um, towards the village, I ran away and they, um, they caught me and grabbed me uh, and detained me. Um, when I was taken to the police station, I heard the border police officers, which is Israeli paramilitary forces, um, part of the Israeli police, but under army jurisdiction. Um, I heard that at the police station, I heard them um, coordinating their testimonies before they're being before giving them to the police, saying something along the line, say he threw stones. Uh, so I was. Um, I was charged. I was I was accused of uh, throwing stones, um, um, obstructing a police officer, and rioting. Um, I spent three weeks in jail, uh, indicted for these charges, and then, after three weeks, released into house arrest, um, which I am in to present day, uh, five months later. Is it un unusual to be being held for three weeks um, and, and now, uh, you know, in before charges have been 
filed. Is that is that unusual or is that typical? Um, charges were actually filed quite early, so it wasn't three weeks until they were um, until they were filed. It was three weeks until it was released. It was just a, a procedural process. I was mostly released because uh, I was I became very ill uh, in jail um, because of uh, maltreatment. Um, but the answer for that is that it is very rare for Jewish uh, for 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 Jews who have an Israeli citizenship to be held for that long. But it is very customary for Palestinians, uh, whether they do have whether Israel considers them citizens or whether they are subjects, uh, to be held for that long or even longer under arrest with before charges are filed. Um, before and right after it, it, it is just so I'll, I'll try and uh, put some order into this uh, and explain the, the differences. So we have something that even apartheid South Africa didn't have in its worst days, and that is two separate, officially separate systems of law, uh, separate and unequal, I may say. Um, one for Palestinians and one for um, Israelis uh, or Jewish Israelis, I should say. Um, that's in the West Bank. So if a settler or myself um, who have an Israeli citizenship are arrested at the West Bank demonstration, we would be tried um, under in an Israeli court under the Israeli Penal Code. Um, our prosecutor would be just a lawyer, um, we'd be questioned by the police under the Israeli Penal Code. Um, our judge would be a civil, a civilian judge. Palestinians, however, are tried under military law in military tribunals. That means that, that the person who arrested them was a soldier, the prosecutor is a soldier, and the judge is a soldier in uniform. The legislator, the so-called legislator, is the military commander. So also, uh, like these are military decrees, not legislation. Uh, so also um, soldier in uniform. The entire system is rigged to perpetuate Israeli control. That's its sole purpose. It's, we may argue about how true that is, but liberal, um, liberal systems of law have the pretense, at least the pretense of, like, of uh, caring about or about caring about the interests of the people who they try and the society in which they live in. And that's that completely doesn't exist, uh, even in the on the level of pretense with the military um, legal system. Um, it's just there to perpetuate and cement Israeli control. Um, and the prosecution so, rate is 99 percent, right? Uh, over 99 percent, 99.7, something like ridiculous like that. Um, and we can go over, like, we can go into detail about why it's like that, because it's not just because it's so, um, it, it, it's, it's so rigged that it has to be that way. And I, I'll explain in a second. But um, it, it's, not, it's not just that it's, it's different in that way, that the laws themselves are very different, or and the procedure is very different. For instance, if I'm arrested, I have to be brought in uh, before in front of a judge within 24 hours, no matter what, uh, a police uh, in the military court system, the police and our army has 96 hours 
to present a defendant before it, before they have to present to the, uh, an RST before a judge. Um, almost all offenses in military law are punishable by 10 years or more. Um, the like you said, the conviction rates are ninety nine point seven um, percent. But even more than that, it is extremely unusual when people are released on uh, on on any sort of bail uh, in the military um, in the military system, which is basically the norm, unless you've committed, you know, murder or rape or something like that. Uh, in the in the Israeli uh, civilian system, um, right. So you're saying that Palestinians, uh, once once they get into the military court system, can basically be held in in jail for very very long periods of time as their cases are winding. Are tried, and that is part of the reason why the conviction rate is so high, because in offenses which are not one of the more serious offenses that the military. Um, code has people would like the trials would last longer than the actual uh sentence would be um so people often cut deals even whether they've done it or not um knowing that they'll serve the time anyway right right so you and your lawyer have done something very unusual which given this context given that you are a jewish israeli with israeli citizenship you have as i understand asked that you be tried not in an israeli civilian court but in one of the military courts to which palestinians are subject in the west bank can you explain to me the the reason you've done that so my stance is that israel is an apartheid state um and as such, Israeli uh, Israeli courts are illegitimate uh, in trying um, in in trying us for resisting uh, Israeli apartheid. Um, so my like like you've said in the introduction, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been um, I've been in jail several times, in prison several times before, uh, and the way I usually conduct myself. Uh, in front of the court is to, is with refusing to recognize it. Uh, simply not participate. Um, they want to try me. They try me. I usually don't show up um, and don't present a defense because I believe that the courts are illegitimate and I should not. Uh, it, it's not a question of guilty not guilty. Uh, the court has no legitimacy to determine whether the the, the level of my guilt. Um, what we decided to do in this case in order to try and highlight uh, like the policies of apartheid is to, to make um, a legal argument uh, uh, regarding the fact that Israelis, that Jewish Israelis are tried in civilian courts while Palestinians, whether they are subjects in the West, living in the West Banks or residents of Israel uh, are tried in military courts. And this is, a, this is an issue of policy because the the this strange situation of two uh, systems of law allows uh, legally allows the prosecution the prerogative to decide where to try uh, Israeli citizens. So they can just decide if they if they wanted to, they could try everyone in military courts, uh, which is what international law suggests should be the case. 
even if even if even if, even if you're an Israeli citizen. Yeah, and in fact, Israeli like Palestinians who have Israeli Israeli citizenship, and this is something we brought in front of the court. Um, this is basically our legal argument, our non-political legal argument. Israelis, uh, Palestinians who have legal, uh, sorry, Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship are very often tried in front of military court when the offenses they're tried for, um, are the alleged offenses they're tried for, are carried out in the West Bank, are related to the West Bank, or even if some of their um, if some of their accomplices are tried in the West Bank. Um, so this is very, very obviously and very, very easily shown um, a, a very, very clear case of apartheid. So you could be a Palestinian citizen even who was arrested in, let's say, Haifa. But if the, uh, let's say for some resistance against Israeli policy, but you're saying if they could draw some connection between that act of resistance and events in the West Bank, you could still potentially be put uh, convict, uh, prosecuted in a military court, even though you're a citizen and even though you weren't actually in the West Bank when it took place. Yes. Um, it, it, of course, if it didn't actually take place in the West Bank, it's harder for them to do that. But yeah. they have something called... Um, the affinities test. So they check the, like, where is the strongest affinity? Now, of course, that's completely uh, subjective. Uh, and somehow, miraculously, Palestinians are almost always, like the affinity of Palestinians is uh, always leans more towards the military um, courts. And the affinity of Israelis never leans towards it, uh, military courts, including when we're talking about settlers who live in the West Bank. Right, right. So is there any precedent for uh, Jewish Israelis being tried in military courts? Yes, in the 70s. Um, at first, when the 67 occupation started, Israeli citizens were tried in military courts, settlers and leftists, <clears throat> leftists alike. And then that policy changed. Uh, and since then, I am not familiar with Jewish Israelis, with cases of Jewish Israelis tried in, in West Bank military courts. Mm -hmm. um, we've looked a lot and couldn't find any. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 <clears throat> by doing this and putting yourself at even greater risk, your goal is to do what? My goal is... First and foremost is to try and minimize um, my unfair privilege uh, compared to my comrades um, who face the military court all the time. Um, and my second goal, which is not unrelated, is to expose Israeli apartheid for what it is in ways that are harder to ignore. You have, as you said, been doing this work for a very long time. Um, what have you learned about um, the potential efficacy of different kinds of resistance to, um, to Israeli oppression and about potential vulnerabilities or weaknesses in this system of injustice that you're trying to, to overthrow? That, that's, a, that's a very difficult question. I think, um... The 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 answer is uh, it depends. <laughs> okay. I think there's I, I 
I think that we often have a tendency to try and isolate uh, different sorts of resistance to Israeli. I mean, it might not even be related to Israeli, like resistance to Israeli policy. We have a tendency to try and isolate sorts of resistance, like to classify something as nonviolent, as civil, as armed. Um, And I think historically, uh, struggles are not waged that way. Um, Palestinians are often asked, uh, where is your Mandela? Uh, And people forget that um, Mandela was tried for treason because he was a forming member of the um, uh, of the MK of the ANC's military wing. Conte was his way, the military wing of the yeah, ANC, I, which he yeah, helped to start. Yes, yeah, um, and he has never renounced them. Um, not even after um, not even after the 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 talks began, uh, he was considered a terrorist long after. Um, apartheid was over by the US, for instance. Um, So, and the ANC also had the strategy of ungovernability, which um, was a big part of ending apartheid. And they also waged um, boycott, divestment and sanction campaigns, which were a huge part of ending apartheid. Um, And they were also uh, and they were also aware of ge- geopolitical changes, uh, like the fall of the Soviet Union and the and the and the communist bloc, uh, and knew how to utilize it um, towards ending apartheid. Um, so a successful struggle uh, ranges from complete nonviolence, such as uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, to um, civic unrest, which is often violent, um, like the strategy of ungovernability and the riots in Soweto and so forth, uh, and all the way to armed resistance, uh, like the MK, which had its importance as well uh, in ending apartheid and in um, invigorating uh, youth and in uh, creating cohesion in the struggle. so, like, I don't think we can ever say there is one thing that we need to do. Um, I think it's always a question of tactics and of strategy and it and of what is right at a certain time. Now, of course, violence is a horrible thing, but I feel like talking strictly about nonviolence um, is both tactically wrong, and I think it also. I mean, no one, no one would ask um, Israelis why are, why is Israel not nonviolent? Why is, isn't Israel choosing nonviolence, right? Because Israel has an army. It's it's just not how it works. You you could not ask this question. It would just be insane. Um, and if we pose that question, uh, not speaking about tactics, but if we pose that question as a as a wider uh, question. I I think we're playing into Israel's hands. But one could still argue that there is a distinction between armed resistance against just directed against civilians and armed resistance directed against representatives of the state. Um, the MK, as you know, in Quantu is his way, although it did take up armed resistance, was generally quite careful not to go after civilian targets. Um, At the time. I mean, they bombed... It, it, it went after industrial targets, right? But it... There, it no, 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 not, not only. They bombed, 
they they bombed uh, burger joints at some point. Uh, I mean, there was in, in I think in general you would find that there was very very little of that. Um, there, there was little of that. That's considered true. Considered to be counterproductive, and also there are distinctions under international law between. It's, that's so true. I, I'm mm -hmm. I'm wondering. I mean, I I take your premise that it should go that the amount of violence to which Palestinians are subjected to is exponentially greater, obviously, than the amount of violence that. That, pa that Palestinians inflict upon Israelis. But I'm just, since we're on this subject, I, I would, I am interested in this question of how you think, not just about nonviolence versus armed resistance, but the question of, of whether you think there's any difference between civilians and, and non-civilians. Um, I, I think there is, of course, a difference between civilians and non-civilians. Um, I, I, I don't think there's anyone denying that there is a difference between civilians and non-civilians. Um, but I also think that it is often not a question of what's right, but what's possible. Uh, so not condoning um, acts against civilians, but I think if you shut Gaza down behind a wall, turning it into the worst prison um, in the world, the largest worst prison in the world, where the only option of resistance is shooting uh, homemade or non-homemade rockets uh, towards Israel. It doesn't make it right, it, th but that's not the question. It is going to happen. And it is Israeli responsibility uh, that it is happening because that is all there is left. And, you, and if people have either the option of doing something that's wrong or dying, um, most people will do something that's wrong. So I'm sure you're my, you know, my guess is like most people who are deeply dedicated to a struggle, you are less interested, you are more interested in the cause of justice and oppression than you are in your in yourself and your own personal psychology. But I think that there would be many people who would be genuinely curious about how you came to this activism and to be so dedicated to it, given that people ask the question, what would it take to produce a more, a more profound shift in Israeli Jewish society? Um, and given, uh, what would it take to produce more people who thought the way you did? Um, and given that you've lived your entire life as an Israeli, as a, as a Jewish Israeli, and I in, understand the society intimately, I'm, I'm just curious how you think about that question, what made you such an outlier? And if you have any thoughts about what might bring other Jewish Israelis to the place where they would see things more like the way that you see them. Okay, I think these are maybe two separate questions that do Please. not have the same answer. Great, um, answer them both. Thank you. Um, so I, it's hard for me to say what led me to a certain place. It, it, there wasn't a moment. Uh, like there isn't, um, there isn't a moment I can point to that said, ah, that's when I understood. I grew up in a fairly left-wing family. Um, like my parents weren't activists, but there were always. Uh, fairly left-wing, like the first demonstration I was at, I was a few months old uh, and my mom took me, it was after the Sabra and Shatila massacre. Um, so obviously it's just a story. I don't remember anything yeah. of it. And the first one I remember, um, it was also one that my mom took me to. It was at the beginning of the first Intifada in 87 and I was five, five or six years old. Uh, my younger brother had just been born and it was a march in support of the Intifada, of the uprising. 
And the only thing I can remember of it is like we were marching towards Jaffa from Tel Aviv towards Jaffa. And, uh, and the only thing I can remember of it is that police, uh, mounted police had marched their horses to break the, the march apart. Uh, can't tell you exactly what the march was about and how it all developed, but that, that's my memory of it. Um, and I got more involved in politics like on my own in my early teens um, around um, like I, I've been vegetarian since I'm seven and then in my early teens I got involved in animal rights um, and veganism and it was um, the the animal rights movement at the time was um, very much connected to the anarchist movement uh, so that's how I got involved in in anarchism um, and you know it's a that's that I, I feel like it all led uh, there uh, somehow, you know, gradually. Um, and of course, when the Second Intifada broke, I started being involved in everything that happened. And it's an intensity that creates a, a bond that is very hard to detach. It's it's a or I, I don't know. If, it's hard to detach because I've never wanted to detach it but it, it creates a very very strong bond um and i grew more and more involved and more and more committed to it hmm. um and our second question is yeah. um i think it would take uh several different things it's it's hard to say exactly what would bring about an end to israeli apartheid um i think it will require a certain uh, geopolitical shift uh, in the balance of powers uh, and interests um, surrounding um, Israeli colonialism. Um, I think it would definitely require uh, Israelis to stop benefiting from occupation. Um, right now, Israeli economy, like people often wonder, how come Israeli economy is um, so success successful despite uh, being in a constant state of um, um, of war or um, conflict um, and despite being an occupying power. My answer to that is that Israel is so successful because it uh, commodifies war. Um, the number one um, the, the the number one element in of in Israeli economy is the military industrial uh, its military industrial complex, uh, including its um, the, the, its high tech branches um, of espionage, etc. Um, and until so, my answer to that is that Israeli society is going to be have to uh, it's going to let we we will have to force uh, Israeli society into uh, ending colonialism and apartheid. It is not something that is going to happen voluntarily from within uh, Israeli society. The same way that it didn't um, with ending slavery in the South or uh, ending Jim Crow or ending apartheid in South Africa. It is always something that has to come through struggle and through forcing the reactionary forces um, into, I mean, I, I don't like using that word, but into submission, into ending, um, uh, ending apartheid. 
So I think that's undeniable, as you know, as Frederick Douglass said, uh, you know, um, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. Um, but is there a role for moral persuasion for kind of appeals to conscience in addition to to these forms of pressure in 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 the Israeli case? Do you believe that there are? Because I, I imagine you have had more conversations than you could possibly count with Israeli Jews who, you know, who 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 can't who who have a, you know, who basically are defenders of the of the of the of the current system. Do you feel like there are anything that can be said by by you or by Palestinians or by others that can be appeals of conscience that could that could impact people, or is that just as hopeless? So I think within every theory of change, there's always a place for political and moral arguments, uh, and that the role of for two reasons. First of all, that the role of the of those on the margin is to try and pull out, uh, like pull the cent like the centers towards the the margin. Um, so of course you pull those closer to you, and they pull closer to them. Um, so while we're probably unable to speak to mainstream Israeli society, there may be uh, those on the on the margins that can be uh, that can be swayed. That's one thing. My other thought is that change is never just an issue of coincidence um, of circumstances. Um, it is the coming together of political power, and circumstances. Had the Soviet Union uh, fell without the ANC being able to consolidate some power and uh, and use it to uh, to pressure um, the apartheid regime, the apartheid regime may not have fallen. The US government may not have stopped supporting uh, the apartheid regime. Um, it, is a, it is a question of building a movement, of uh, preparing the foundation uh, for wider mobilization, for spread, and for a moral argument to, um, to gain traction. Um, there's, a, there's a very strong argument about the end of slavery in the US as well, that it, you know, the, the anti-slavery the, the anti movement has worked for decades before Lincoln um, ended slavery, um, and then the economy changed. Uh, and there was it was in the interest of the I'm, I'm of way oversimplifying it, of course, but it was in the interest of the North to end slavery. But it was the 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 coming together of a political movement, of a moral message, and of a larger economic or geopolitical change um, that enabled um, change to actually happen. Right, and. How do you, again, you, you must be in this strange, you're in this unusual position of being in solidarity, working with Palestinians all the time. Um, and then presumably, because you still are an, a Jewish Israeli, hearing Jewish Israelis constantly assert that Palestinians simply want Jew, Jews dead or expelled or subjugated. When you well, hear- I, I'm that, living proof. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I-, I, I when I'm not under house arrest, but the majority of my life is among Palestinians. I, I, I do not, I mean, I am an Israeli citizen, and of course I enjoy the privilege um, and down by the state uh, mm -hmm. to, to 
whoever she the, the state perceives as a Jewish Israeli. But I myself do not see myself, do not self-identify neither as Israeli or, uh, and I'm not religious in the sense of uh, being Jewish. Um, and it is actually, in my view, under the circumstances, the current circumstances we're living under, important to renounce Judaism, uh, for, for me to renounce Judaism, uh, because the way Zionism uh, has historically and currently uses um, Judaism as a, as a um, uh, weaponized Judaism uh, as a... Um, as a, as a weapon against Palestinians. Um, and, and yet you received an award uh, named for Yeshayahu Leibovitz, right? I did, yeah. Who's, you know, who, has, who was an Orthodox Jew, uh, who was. Judaism was perhaps in some way connected to his, you know, strong opposition to the occupation. So I'm obviously not an anti-Semite. Um, that <laughs> no, that I didn't is not my you. point. Um, <laughs> and I, renouncing Judaism is, a, is, a, is, is personal. Um, obviously, uh, religious people are, it's not something I expect of anyone and definitely not of religious people. It's mm -hmm. just something that I feel is right for me to do in my personal, um, uh, in my personal circumstances, um, and in my political standing and privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're drawing a distinction between the way Judaism functions in Israel uh, compared to the way it functions in some other part of the world where it's not of course. tied to a system of Jewish. And of course, I would never dream of telling anyone how to define themselves. Um, if anyone who perceives themselves as Jewish, is, uh, that's, complete, that's completely legitimate. I'm not, it's not about uh, telling people what they should do. It's uh, my view and feeling vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Judaism under Israeli apartheid. You've talked about different movements for, for justice. As you know, some movements for justice have struggled with the question of how to integrate people who are from the group that is inflicting um, the oppression. You know, you sure you know that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, at one point basically told its white members who have been very prominent to basically leave because they felt like it had created a, a power dynamic and a privilege dynamic that Black members had a problem with. So I'm very curious about how you, as someone who's very integrated into Palestinian uh, resistance and protest work, think about those questions of, of privilege and how you relate to Palestinian resistance as someone who's not Palestinian. So I've, I've actually written about that several times. Um, I think, um, first of all, I think that um, the only way um, the only way forward is to relinquish um, Israelism uh, politically and for people who come from the settler society, uh, from Israeli society, to find ways to find their path into Palestinian resistance and into the Palestinian liberation movement. Um, having said that, um, it is clear that for that to be successful, um, or, or not even not for that to be successful. It is clear that Israelis or, or that former Israelis, that, that people of uh, Jewish origin or Jews who joined the, the Palestinian movement will do so as a minority, mm -hmm. um, as a non-prominent minority, um, and that the struggle must always be Palestinian-led, um, like it was Black-led um, in, in the US, 
uh, and like it was black-led in uh, in South Africa. Um, and that is always a determining factor um, in every uh, political group that I've ever been part of uh, in, in Palestine. So do you feel that as someone, you know, who... Uh, Let's take a, a a much overused example, but still I'll use it anyway. The um the 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 first Hamas charter, which had anti-Semitic language about the protocols of the elders of Zion in it. Um, do you feel that as it as someone who, let's say, who who grew up as an Israeli Jew, do you feel you have the right to to criticize? Things that Palestine that, that the Palestinian resistance does, or do you essentially have to take orders no matter what direction it goes in? Well, you obviously, I mean, there. I, I think something like that paints a picture of Palestinian uniformity, and no political movement is uniform. And when right. joining a political movement, you make your choice of which political movement to join. So um, you have the right to. You feel like you are empowered to choose among the varieties of different Palestinian political visions the one that that suits. That you think is is the best? Um, yes, of course. I mean, I mean, yeah, of course. Everyone joining a political a political movement join a specific political movement. There isn't, even if I, it's not a question of having the right to do that. There isn't a Palestinian movement, a, a singular Palestinian movement right. anyone could join. Um, so it is not even a question of me having the right or not. It's just simply unavoidable. Right. I mean, I would imagine that. Islamist political visions are less appealing to you than political visions which talk in secular language about, you know, international law and and human rights. And well, I'm I'm not a great proponent of international law. I believe it's the law of the powerful, and it mm -hmm. was mostly made to govern the world, uh, right. by the the victorious for the victorious to govern the world. Right. But yeah, I definitely um, do think that um, that. I mean, I definitely do. I am definitely secularist, democratic visions are definitely more appealing to me. I know that I'm interested in 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 what do how do you think when you imagine a, a decolonized Israel Palestine, um, what would it mean for uh, for Israeli Jews to live in a decolonized society, um, how do you, can do you? I mean, because we've been talking about South Africa, as, as you know, many not perfect. <laughs> many uh, people are bitterly, you know, uh, disappointed because, you know, you mentioned in, in some ways what ended up happening was that you had political rights and political equality, and you maintained the deep structure of economic apartheid. So, what well, what is, what would decolonization look like, and where? What in what? How would Israeli Jews live in a decolonized state? So decolonization is never very, very pretty. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's never perfect. Um, there's always a struggle to be fought. Um, there will it will probably take very, very long until we see, and it will definitely be imperfect uh, in implementation and in uh, vision as well. Um, the point of it is that it is better than what exists now, not for me as an individual to live in, but as a as a just system um, of uh, of yeah, governing of existence. I, it's, it, I I mean I don't even have the the exact word, but it with 
however imperfect it will be, and it will be imperfect, um, it will be more just than the situation right now. Do you, do you think it's it's likely that a decolonized Israel-Palestine would still have a very large Israeli Jewish, a really, very large population of, of Israeli Jews, or that in, in, in reality, it might end up looking more like an Algeria situation or some situation in which most Israeli Jews just decided essentially we're not comfortable living in this place? Um, it's it's hard to answer. I, I don't know. It's it's too theoretic. I mean, we're right. we're not we're not there. I mean, it's I have a good friend um, who was involved in resistance in South Africa, and he told me at the end of the eighties that was the worst time. We couldn't even imagine apartheid ever ending. So our ability for political imagination is limited. Um, I think it, there are fundamental differences between here and Algeria, um, namely that not all Israelis have the option to leave. Uh, there isn't like it, the, the colonial model is, is a bit different. Right. There isn't a uh, metropole like France in the same way. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it's it's too far away to imagine the the specifics of things. Right. I mean, what does seem closer, tell me if you think I'm wrong, is is the possibility of another Israeli effort at mass expulsion. I'm 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 curious. I mean, obviously taking for granted that Israeli expulsion happens on a kind of kind of a continuous place way, but sometimes at a smaller scale and sometimes at a larger scale historically. I wonder, as someone who spends a lot of time in, in the West Bank, how, how far away you think the situation is from some kind of larger scale effort at expulsion on the scale of 1948 or 1967. So um, again, it's, it's hard to predict whether this is something impending, um, going to happen in a few months or a few years, or um, if it's a longer term risk, uh, because things can change very quickly. Um, but it's definitely um, it, it's definitely on the table. Um, that is Israeli policy of, of creeping ethnic cleansing. Um, not so long ago, the Israeli Supreme Court, the Israeli High Court, um, that everyone uh, is so eager to defend now as the as a beacon of democracy approved the forced removal and ethnic cleansing of over a thousand people at the, uh, at the south of uh, the Hebron district. Masafriyata, uh, the village. Yeah, exactly. Um, that whole general area. Um, the Israeli court act, uh, has approved the ethnic cleansing of Khan al-Ahmar. Um, Prominent Israeli ministers call for call, like a prominent Israeli minister, Bezalel Smotrich, who is a who is a minister in the ministry Ministry of Defense, um, has called for the erasure of Hawara. Um, prominent members of Knesset and former um, and former ministers have warned Palestinians that uh, if they keep on a second Nakba uh, is, is looming. Uh, th th these are not fantasies. These are things that happen every day um, and, that, um, and, and that Israel uses as a threat um, towards Palestinians. Th these are things that we must take very, very seriously. Um, and 
also demo demographically, um, Israel faces a crisis uh, and its reaction to such crisis could be um, very aggressive ethnic cleansing. What's the crisis? That there are no longer, even today, there isn't a Jewish minority between the river and the sea. Um, and you mean there isn't a Jewish majority. There's now there is a, sorry, there isn't a Jewish majority between yes. the river and the yes. sea. Uh, there is a Jewish minority. Um, and the, you know, it, 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 the minor, like the, the Palestinian majority is growing. Um, so the, the, to Israel depends on its ability uh, to draw itself as a democracy. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the current uh, pro-democracy demonstrations and why I think they're dangerous. Um, but Israel depends on its, uh, as, on its image as a democracy. And it could not sustain um, both its image as a, as a Jewish democracy um, and a Jewish minority uh, for very long. So you mentioned the protests. There are, as you know, there are anti-occupation activists and uh, uh, people who who do join those protests as the, I guess what mm -hmm. it's called, the anti-occupation bloc. And, and even some who may believe, as you talked about, that people can be brought closer to their to their their perspective. That seems to not be your view. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you reflect on why you don't think that the protest should be engaged with. Well, I'm, I don't necessarily think that the process shouldn't be engaged with. Uh, it's just a question of how. Um, and But first, let's talk about why I think they're dangerous. Uh, I think they're dangerous because th they openly, um, they openly um, fight to protect Israeli democracy, to defend Israeli democracy. Um, now, Viewing Israeli, Israel as a democracy is something that's very appealing to elements in the West, um, especially governing elements in the West who seek uh, stabilization and um, like market stabilization, etc. Um, and these, now I, I want to say uh, offhand that the current government is dangerous. Uh, it's a, it is a uh, it is a fascist government with genocidal tendencies. Uh, and I don't say genocidal lightheartedly. I mean, it's not a word I, I use a lot. Um, it's a government with genocidal tendencies and it is very, very dangerous. But it is dangerous not because um, it isn't the previous government and not because it threatens the judiciary. It is dangerous because it is an epitome of Israeli tendency of, of Israel's general shift to the left uh, for decades now, uh, to the right, sorry, right. Israel's shift to the right uh, for decades now. Um, so concentrating on the, uh, on the judiciary and the um, attempts to weaken it uh, and attempts to uh, undermine democracy within 60, within 48, within, uh, Israel plays into uh, this false divide, into the hands of those um, wanting to um, uh, to keep on presenting this false divide. Uh, and there is a risk of these demonstrations actually uh, winning. 
um, or partially winning uh, and having saved uh, Israeli democracy, that would undermine uh, Palestinian ability to severely undermine Palestinian ability to pinpoint, uh, to effectively pinpoint uh, Israeli apartheid and Israeli colonialism. Um, and I think that's very, very dangerous. Um, a second reason I think um, our role as radicals isn't within these demonstrations is that there's obviously a divide now within Israeli society. Our role is, like I said, to point at how dangerous, at the, at the dangers of, of this movement. And second of all, to show, to, to, to see uh, where that divide is and where it can be used to weaken Israeli society. We must not perceive ourselves as part of Israeli society trying to reform and change it. Um, it is like apartheid needs to be toppled, not reformed. So your, so for instance, so your view would be that um, uh, it would be equally dangerous in terms of from the question, from the point of view of of freedom of Palestinians for the protest movement to stop the judicial overhaul that the Netanyahu government is pushing, as it would be if it were to um, to fail. I I think it's. Um it's a conundrum. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a, it's a, it was a strategic mistake. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a strategic mistake because they don't have my political point of view. They do want to save Israeli democracy as they perceive it. Um, but for people who do share my point of view, um, that struggle is a, uh, is a strategic mistake. Yes. Um, I guess I just wanted to end by asking you, you know, you are someone who's decided to pay a fairly high price for your political beliefs. You, this was a choice that you was not forced upon you, um, given, you know, as it might have been for many Palestinians. Um, um, and um, I mean, so, so you, you're someone who spent time in jail. Um, uh, and, and, the, um, and I'm wondering in those, in, in, the, in these periods, um, are there things that you turn to books, you know, other things that you look to as for forms of kind of inspiration or, or, or a kind of sense of kind of support in these moments, because what you, the, the path that you've chosen um, is a difficult one and requires self, uh, a degree of self-sacrifice that most people are not willing to do. And I'm curious what you turn, or maybe they're historical examples, what you kind of turn to, to, to help you do that. So I'd, I'd like to start answering that by saying that I I don't identify much with that view of self-sacrifice. I think the political struggle, I mean, obviously there are sacrifices along the way and you pay a price and whatnot, but I think that political activism, uh, especially in when it can be very intense, also gives a lot of strength and a lot of meaning um, and creates community and creates really strong bonds and ties with people. Um, you, 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 you spoke about me having um, spent time in in prison, uh, and it and it's true, and it's true that very few Israelis uh, spend time in prison for political activism. But you have to understand that, in my perspective, 
my comrades go in and out of prison all the time. Uh, and that's my, I mean, I may be, I might have an Israeli ID, but my immediate surrounding, my movement is the Palestinian movement and people go in and out of prison all the time. Uh, and and that's the life I, I'm surrounded with. Um, so for me, it's not some, you know, uh, it, it, it's not some great um, sacrifice. Um, it's just the way our life is. I'm curious, just because you mentioned, you know, you have so much, it, your situation as an Israeli Jew is, is so unusual to be a political activist who's, who's faced these repercussions of the legal system, whereas it's so common for Palestinians. I'm sure that whether it's um, people who work in the in you know in courts or in the or police or army or prison guards, they they view you as an extreme oddity, um, and those interactions must be curious. And I wonder if you ever have had any interactions um, in which you felt that there was a conversation that you had in which you might have been able to make someone think in a different way, or 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 that you know. Because of they, uh, because of the the because of how unusual it is with what you're what you're doing. So I'll tell you a story about the last my last prison stint. Um, so I, I speak Arabic. It's not great, uh, but I speak Arabic, um, and it's very it's it's quite unusual for uh, Jews to speak Arabic, especially for Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and when I'm in jail, so Israel holds prisoners um, in classifies prisoners uh, into different categories. So there's security prisoners and criminal prisoners. Um, Palestinians in who are tried for what I'm tried for are usually held as uh, security prisoners. But because I'm considered Jewish, um, I'm held as a criminal uh, prisoners. Despite that, the prison, prison authorities usually understand that it's better to hold me with Palestinians. Uh, than with uh, with uh, Jewish prisoners, um, or your safety, or or, or... or generally, it, they won't quiet. <laughs> they won't come. Um, they they don't want people fighting over anything. Um, like Russians are usually held in cell, in the same cells with Russians. Uh, it, it's just like that. So they understood that my classification it, it, that it's better for them to hold me in a cell with other Palestinians. It's not one hundred percent of the time, but usually. Um, so obviously I speak almost only Arabic when I'm there. A lot of the guards are, are Jews. So I speak Arabic to the guards as well. And then like people get really, really confused. Um, also because my dialect is West Bank dialect, but it's not what you would expect, uh, from someone who grew up in Jaffa. It's just very confusing for everyone, like the guards, Palestinians, everyone. So I, I always have to explain like what my story is. Um, and there was um, there was this certain moment um, where I was called to the warden because um, I, I needed to fill out some form asking for like some stuff to be brought in, like clothes and like a change of clothes and, and some books. And they gave me the form to fill up and they say, oh, you can you can ask for this and this and that and that. And if you want a praying mat and a, and a Quran, it's like, oh, no, 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 you're Jewish. But yeah, we don't know which you, you just ask what you want. 
Interesting. That's um, um, well, Jonathan, thank you for, for doing this. It's a really, um, uh, I, I think it, it's a, it's an extraordinary, um, thing to hear you talk about the work you're doing. Um, and, um, I, 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 you know, there was uh, recently, as you may know, in the United States, Daniel Ellsberg died, uh, who was famous for releasing the Pentagon papers and the the story about his transformation had to do, as you may know, with his interaction with a man named Randy Keller, who was much more radical than him. You know, Ellsberg was really in the belly of the beast of the American national security, but Keller was someone who was going to jail for war resistance. And Keller's sacrifice that he made as someone who was really on the margins of American society touched something in Ellsberg so that Ellsberg used actually the position that he was in, in a position of power to do something that only someone and he Kim could do. So I, I, I seems to me that that would be one that, that I hope people listening to you, even if some of them are not willing to do all the things that you do, can be touched in the same way that Keller touched Ellsberg to think to, that what they can do, given where they are, to resist um, this form of oppression that um, uh, that is doing such such terrible damage um, uh, um, uh, to Palestinians and um, and uh, I'm very very grateful for you for chatting. Thank you, thank you for having me. It was a great talk. Um, so I'm um, I wanted to thank the viewers for tuning into Occupied Thoughts and please make sure to check out the FMVP website fmvp.org resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.